Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining me again, a special co-host for today's show is Forrester's head of research, Carrie Johnson. Welcome back, Carrie. Thank you, Victor. And also joining us on the phone today is Paul Miller, senior analyst at Forrester, to discuss the current state of industrial platforms. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Victor. Good to be here. So, Paul, there is a lot of attention paid to consumer-facing platforms, and probably Alibaba and Amazon are the flagships of those two examples. But in the B2B world, there's actually a significant dynamic afoot in terms of industrial platforms. Can you just baseline what they are and where they are and maybe use a couple of industries for examples? What we're really looking at here is traditional industries, manufacturing, automotive, the energy sector, and and on and on and on. All of these industries recognizing that their traditional bread and butter, which was making great physical products, that's not enough anymore. They recognize that in order to compete, in order to survive, and in order to deliver real sustainable value to their customers, they need to wrap those physical products with a whole range of digitally enabled services. That could be anything from, you know, making sure that the spare parts you need for your product arrive when you need them. It could be predictive maintenance, so telling you in advance that a particular part is likely to fail. Or it could be a whole range of additional services that we're only just beginning to explore, where companies like Kaser Compressor in Germany, for example, shift from building great physical products and selling those towards a new model where they actually charge their customers by the litre of compressed air. The, The customer gets the same outcome. The sales cycle and the relationship with the customer is completely different. And all of that is enabled by these industrial platforms that we're talking about. So when I first thought about this podcast, I thought about the idea that all of the optimization of supply chain has been done. And the only way you're going to get the next financial gain is by reimagining it. But I, I think your comment is different, that there's value to the customer. There's new ways of doing business. There's new ways. I mean... There's new technology to exploit. There's a lot of things conspiring altogether to make this moment possible. Yeah, absolutely right, yes. And I think, you know, when we talk to Forrester clients, they tend to come into this with exactly the attitude you described there. They're talking about the ways they can use these technologies to be a little bit more efficient or a little bit cheaper or a little bit more reliable. And that's how they approach the problem to begin with. And we then take them on a journey. And there are a number of analysts at Forrester working in this space. And we take them on a journey and talk to them about rethinking what the business model might be, rethinking the ways in which you touch your customers. And it may be that in the past, you've actually been an industrial product manufacturer who has never got close to the customer. You you are a, a maker of cars or a maker of washing machines or a maker of Um, turbine blades for nuclear reactors or whatever it may be, but you've sold and passed those parts to intermediaries. You know, if if you're the maker of a washing machine, you've probably delivered those washing machines to a local electrical goods shop. Um, And that's where we go and buy our washing machine. And we have no relationship with Bosch or with Siemens or, or with AEG or with whoever made the washing machine. Increasingly, as you move to sort of a connected model for those products, 
the maker of the product can have a relationship with the end customer and can deliver new services to them, but can also learn an awful lot about how they actually use those products in the real world. And they can use that to make better products for the next generation. Help me understand the difference between finding new sources of value and potentially even revenue streams, right, based on the data that your products are throwing off potentially, and then being a platform. They don't seem like the same thing. They aren't necessarily the same thing. And we've got some work just about to come out, which begins to talk about this use of data in these platforms. So there are some companies absolutely setting themselves up to be a platform. And to, uh, particularly in some of the work I've been doing, you know, they're setting themselves up to be an industrial IoT platform. The likes of GE with Predix, the likes of Siemens with Mindsphere and others. And they're trying to, to become a trusted place where data and insights will flow, either for them to monetize or for their customers to monetize. You don't have to have all of those pieces. You may be a builder of washing machines who decides that you want a closer relationship with your customer. You want to monetize those insights and that data. That doesn't mean you have to go and build that platform yourself you may turn to one of the existing providers of some of these capabilities and pass data to them and then extract the insight and extract the value. It makes no sense for every single industrial provider to say, if we want to play in this game, we have to build and own our own platform. Because the reality is that all your customers, all your partners, all your suppliers are having to deal with lots of other providers too. And the last thing that a maker of screws or widgets wants to have to worry about is dealing with as many platforms as they have customers. That makes no sense for anybody. Yeah, it seems to me there's two differences. One is, you know, supply chains are mostly linear. And my understanding is that this is much more of an orchestration, which is to your point, whether it's BASF or others, they're going to move forward and get as close to the customer as they can because that informs business volume, value creation, all sorts of things. And the other is the use of technology. This allows data to be used to create value that was never available before. I mean, those, those seems like at least two, not all, but two big differences between a platform as an organism, as an, as an active orchestrated ecosystem versus just a better linear set of relationships. Yes, I think that's fair. And I think, you know, one of the questions that opens up in this space, you talked about supply chains. You know, as you begin to be able to leverage these insights, as you begin to be able to leverage the, the data coming straight off a machine on the other side of the planet and use that to, to make decisions in near real time, what does that mean for the optimal length of the supply chain, for example? You know, if you look at... Um, the civil airline industry, now, there are two big players. There's Boeing in North America and there's Airbus in Europe. And they're both taking radically different approaches to how they think about the supply chain moving forward. You know, one is saying, actually, let's stop dealing with lots of partners and let's bring more and more of this in-house under our direct control. The other is doing the exact opposite. They're actually spinning off a lot of their own capabilities and saying, let's extend this supply chain, let's have more partners, let's use the fact that we can 
del deliver insight in near real time and use that to actually extend the supply chain further and reduce our risk and reduce our you know, liabilities. And at the moment, we don't actually know which is going to be the right answer, but it's interesting that these two big players are heading in apparently diametrically opposed directions in terms of how they think about their supply chain. Hey, Paul, I want to return back to the point about customer for a second. You know, right now in retail, at least in the U.S., you're starting to see a lot more of the brands actually hold retail space. And they're spending more of their advertising dollars and just broad marketing dollars on showcasing the underlying technology of the equipment or the shoe, whatever they're making. Not the shoe itself, not the design, but the underlying technology. The underlying technology is often the value created by the supply chain. So in the, the construction of the rubber, the construction of the sole of the shoe, BASF may have a larger role in that than, let's say, Nike. So ironically, you'll have a retailer where you're surprised that Nike is there, highly present as its own firm. And then you might over time see a chemical company, BASF, come in and say, well, actually, we own the technology and create that consumer affinity that would never otherwise existed. I mean, that, that creates a very different narrative in the market. How do you see this playing out? I think that's probably some way off. I mean, yet there's absolutely a role for the likes of BASF to talk more about their role in making the products you may associate with someone else, Nike, for, to, to your example. Sticking in, in sort of the, the sports shoe sector, it's interesting that Adidas, for example, is using things like additive manufacturing uh, to build relatively small factories relatively close to the customer. So instead of designing a new uh, running shoe and then outsourcing its production to the lowest possible, uh, factory, lowest possible cost factories, probably in China or in Indonesia or the Philippines or somewhere like that, they're using technologies like additive manufacturing, technologies like augmented reality and even robotics to actually build relatively low-cost factories much, much closer to the customer, particularly in Europe and in North America. And although they don't compete yet with the low-cost manufacturing from Asia in terms of volume, what they do is make Adidas and their supply chain much more nimble. If a particular type of shoe or a particular color of shoe is unexpectedly popular, under the traditional system, you possibly have to wait weeks or months for a new order to come through for, from Asia. As you move to additive manufacturing and local factories, you can actually respond to that demand very, very quickly. And that's an interesting approach we're beginning to see play out as well. One question that I have is, I'll use two examples, the automotive and I'll use bicycles. They run mostly on annual cycles. So each year you have a new version come out. And so you see these end of year sell-offs and you see sort of this pent up sort of July to the October timeframe, people saying, should I wait for the next version? So then they start discounting. Is part of the goal here to get in front of that cycle? Yeah, I think there are, there are a few things going on there. The first would be to be bringing a lot of these supply chains, a lot of these production decisions much closer to just in time. So you're not holding massive inventory that you then have to discount. So you're actually just producing what's needed when it's needed. And you're monitoring sales, you're monitoring 
social media conversation much more closely and you're identifying that a particular colour of product is selling better or a particular specification is selling better and you're using that to optimise what's coming through the supply chain so you're not holding lots of stocks that will never sell. The other thing you can do, and you know, in the, the automotive example, you know, if a large automotive uh, manufacturer it has a new product out and they're shouting about how wonderful the sunroof is or how wonderful the cruise control is. And that's how they drive their marketing, shouting about these products they think are exciting. Compare that to what people are actually saying. So listen to the social conversation, listen to what people are saying after a test drive. And you find maybe they're all talking about how great the stereo system was or how comfortable the seats were. And use that listening to begin to refine your messages and be able to sort of point much more tightly at the things that actually resonate with your potential customers, which again allows you to, to perhaps offset some of that you know, additional stock that you don't want to be carrying. Um, and you know, very much you know, feeding the responses you're getting both from sales but also from the social conversation, feeding that back into the design process so that next year's model is much more closely aligned to what actually resonated with customers. You want to bring those design times and those delivery times and those production times down as short as possible. The idea of getting away from having to plan everything a year in advance is very important and increasingly very possible. I could see where brands would use those signals from the market to indeed market differently to push people to buy what they already have in stock versus actually using it for real-time changes to design or even to influence, you know, stock in six to 12 months. Am I wrong, though? Are we actually starting to see companies do that? Oh, Carrie, you're not, you're not suggesting that um, commercial firms would, would play with the data and, and you know, tweak people's expectations to get them to buy what's available. What a cynical ploy that is. I've worked with retailers and brands for a long time, my friend. Oh, wow. <laughs> this, is, this is a seasoned veteran saying, hey, wait a minute. What's behind that curtain? And, yeah, of course, there's an element of that. Um, to a degree, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, it doesn't have to be about forcing consumers to take something they don't want. It may simply be about learning how to optimize the aspects of a product that actually will appeal to them. That doesn't have to be a bad thing, doesn't have to be a cynical thing. Um, but th there's clearly you know, a scope for, for watching to make sure that doesn't go too far, to make sure that you know, uh, unwilling consumers aren't being taken for a ride. There's also a case here for dynamic ecosystems of partners to provide them with what they want. This is exactly how Amazon developed the marketplace business that it, that it offers and has been so wildly successful. And, and just sort of playing along with that in terms of the features and others, it seems like one of the characteristics of industrial platforms that is worth exploring is the idea that they used to be more or not hardware-centric, physically-centric. And you said that earlier in the discussion, which is you're bringing the software and data, digital twins, Internet of Things, you're creating a digital and software um, essence to these platforms that means that they don't just operate different, they are different and building different kinds of things differently. Yes, absolutely. They are 
you know, as we said back at the beginning, they are taking the great physical products they've been building for a century or more and wrapping digitally enabled services around them to deliver to customers. But to your point, they're absolutely designing those products differently. They're using augmented reality. They're using additive manufacturing. They're building those products differently, using robots and cobots and, and all the rest of it. And then they're supporting and maintaining those products differently, using things like predictive maintenance. Uh, so all of this goes together. And you know, we talk a lot within, within Forrester about this shift from Greece to code. You know, these industrial companies having to rethink what it is they are and how they deliver products to their customers, both in the short term, but also in the long term as a sustainable, valuable interrelationship between the customer and the, and the provider. And technology is a fundamentally important piece of that. And the challenge for these industrial companies is to make that shift. It's one thing for the CEO to say, we're now digital, let's all be digital. It's a very, very different thing to drive those behaviors and those ways of working down into the, the engineering team, but also down into the sales and support teams. And part of this is if you look at the aerospace industry, you have for a long time, they weren't called this, but essentially digital twins where they could create a modeling and simulation environment, whether that was for training or for testing or stress testing, whatever it might be, different scenarios. I think part of this is actually bringing that thought process into other industrial processes so that you could have digital twins that allow you to do a whole lot of testing and a lot of preventative stuff off of the physical asset and remote from the physical asset. Yes, yes. I mean, I think you're right. that A lot of the digital twin conversation came out of the, the CAD and the PLM market. So where products were being designed, there was virtual simulation to understand how those products might perform in the real world. What we're seeing much more of now is digital twins being used to actually understand how those products really do perform in the real world. So, you know, you have wind farms on the side of a mountain in the, to the north of Norway, and you're using a digital twin to simulate what the implications might be of that Arctic storm you can see heading towards those wind turbines. Can you keep them running or do you need to shut them down? You know, to what it, what's, the, what's the risk? What will the stresses be when that assumed wind hits those turbines in those physical conditions? And how do you understand what, what that's going to mean, both for how they're operating now and perhaps for how you might need to task support engineers to get, get out there first thing in the morning to deal with all the problems that are likely to have occurred? Yeah, it's an interesting time for that because we had a podcast with Stephanie about the impacts of global warming that are already playing itself out and some of the more advanced thinking going on to be able to model the impacts of the higher frequency, more severe storms that are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be high, high frequency and, and severe. You know, it could simply be wind is coming um, that may be towards the top end of the tolerances for a turbine, um, but you want to understand the whole market. So you want to be looking, for example, at what the demand is for energy. You want to be looking at what the price is for energy. And then you want to be looking at the likely damage that might be caused by those high winds that are coming. And as a result, you can then make very quick, very sensible decisions. So you might say, your energy is at a premium right now, so I can get 30% more than normal by selling my energy to the grid during this storm because there's a lot of demand. 
and I can therefore work out that actually it's worth running those turbines outside tolerance. It's worth the additional risk of damage. It's worth the additional cost of sending a support engineer out because I will make more money over the six hours of the storm from the energy I sell than I'm going to have to pay out to fix any problems that may be caused. So being able to understand the entire value proposition is an important part of what's going on here. It's not just simulating the likelihood of damage. So in your example, Paul, obviously there is a lot of free-flowing of data, extremely insights-driven, intentional data flowing to make decisions that are complex and multifaceted. And, you know, data was assigned to this concept of being very sexy when big data was there. But it's actually kind of emotional because there's questions of who owns it, who gets to monetize it. When it goes from party A to party B, does ownership change or do the rights change? And have they worked that out in the contracting aspects of it? So where, where do you think we are in the maturation of thinking about data as currency of a platform, in just using your example? I think it's very, very early days. Um, I think there's, there's a growing recognition in every part of the ecosystem that, yes, yeah, th- their data has value. You know, we talk about you know, data is the new oil, data is the new gold, data is w- whatever your favorite analogy might be. The reality is there's a, a clear gap between you know, the, the hope and the aspiration and the reality that most of these organizations are actually able to deliver on because they don't have the data scientists. They don't actually have a clear understanding of what the sensible questions might be from a business perspective that they should be asking in the first place. And then there's all this fear around, you know, to your point, all this fear around who owns it. We've actually just finished a survey in this space um, where particularly in the area of industrial IoT platforms, we've been getting a lot of pushback from Forrester clients saying, I don't want to put my data into the industrial IoT platform of whoever my hardware vendor might be because they already own the machine. I don't want them owning the data as well because then they can, you know, they can start to monetize that data back at me. They might withhold insights that are of value to me and only expose the insights that are of value to them. And that's a consistent fear we keep hearing. And so in this survey, we said, you know, let's find out what's actually going on here. And we went back to all these vendors of industrial IoT platforms and we said, your clients, your prospects are telling us they're worried you're going to do this. What do you have to say about it? You know, why are you, you creating all this fear? And the vendors, every single one of them was unequivocal. The customer owns their data. There was no doubt. There was no hedging. There was no prevarication. They were clear. The customer owns their data. So they own their data, but could they own the meta-analysis on top of that data, which I think is probably the real concern here, is that they understand the trends in businesses across companies and then could feasibly launch their own products and services. And I'm being overt here in that this is the main claim against the Amazon platform for consumers, right? Is that you sell things through them and then they eventually launch private label products because they've learned about those categories. Is that a real fear in the B2B space? Um, it, it is a concern that we hear. 
however, as you begin to dig into some of the contractual terms, and again, some of the, the things the vendors are saying themselves, you know, a number of the vendors in this particular survey you know, came right out and said, we simply cannot see the customer's data stored in our platform. What we can see are the broad meta trends, you know, to, to your point, but actually we're using that to deliver services to them. Um, and wrapped in sufficiently contracts and legalese, that's not a bad thing. You know, it's one thing to say, I want to put my data from all of my machines in my factory into an industrial platform for my own use. And then it should be clear, the data is mine and no one else will touch it. It's something else if I put data into an industrial IoT platform and then buy a service back. Say, for example, I put data into GE Predix or Siemens MindSphere, and I'm buying a service from them to monitor the uptime of my machines. They're monitoring those machines. They're predicting when they'll fail. They have to be able to see some of the data to be able to deliver that service back to me. And provided the contract is clear, that, again, shouldn't be a huge concern. And I think, you know, carry to your, to your point, there's a lot going on here, a lot of different, different facets of use, different stakeholders, different value chains. We need to untease them and talk about them differently because the implications and the expectations are very different in each case. Yeah, I guess I guess my point of reference here is that the the argument of industrial platforms is that over the next five or ten years, they're going to create value that today we can't imagine. Whether that's financial value, whether that's customer value, whether that's new services, new products, whatever it might be. And if I participate in an ecosystem and I sign the contracts that you just described, I might not be able to anticipate those new innovations. And worse, I may not be able to participate in those new innovations. I might have ceded that to somebody else. It's just not the way I work. I can't see the next thing. How do I make sure I'm part of the next thing? I think, I, I mean, in the conversations I've had, that has been the fear of the next unknown. And that I think, Paul, that your research has shown, but correct me if I'm wrong, that participation is much more a viable path than building your own. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. Um, there will be some large providers who, who you know, offer the platforms, and there will be more than one of those platforms. But absolutely, for most players in the industrial ecosystem, they should be participating, not reinventing. And you know, to, to Victor's point around understanding what these risks and what these challenges look like, there's one easy flip answer. You know, talk to Forrester. It's what we're here for. It's why we're talking to all these companies. It's why we're thinking about all these possibilities to provide the advice for those organizations who are in exactly the position Victor described, we're trying to understand what the implications might be and understanding that, you know, I own my data, yes, but to Carrie's point earlier, what rights do I have and what rights do other providers have to the aggregate, you know, the, the analysis, the meta-analysis of that data. And going back to the consumer space, you know, things like the right to be forgotten in, in GDPR. You know, if I take my data out, whether it's human data or data about machines, I can, I can definitely take my data out. I have that right to be forgotten. 
But what happens to the aggregate? What happens to the contribution of data about my machines to the pool of data about all the machines? And that sort of question has different answers in different use cases. And that's one of those things we need to work through and become much clearer about describing. Yeah, I think one, one example that comes to mind is, is Internet of Things use in auto insurance. So I have devices and cars that is being used to help better assess risk and, in theory, create better value for customers. And over time, I'll amass a whole lot of information at the same time that ride sharing and mobility become more real. So ultimately, the insurer, the, the transaction of insurance may come from Uber. So they ultimately benefit from understanding the risks amassed or risk revealed by the full range of IO2 data. So the insurance company took, made the investment, they made the first big stride, but the ultimate winner wasn't the insurance company other than as a carrier, but as Uber or Google or somebody else as actually the point of transaction when I do usage-based insurance. I mean, it's, you can see how, how things evolve or get disrupted. Value moves so far away from the point of origin. It, it can, yes. And usage-based insurance is absolutely one area where we're seeing some very interesting partnerships firming up. You know, not necessarily the likes of Uber and the ride-sharing firms, but partnerships between you know, more traditional firms in this space, like the insurers that you mentioned, Victor, and like the likes of Bosch or some of the telecoms providers or some of the automotive uh, manufacturers, you know, creating partnerships and delivering these solutions to the driver in their car. You know, um, you have an Audi or you have a BMW, and for some reason you decide to let Carry drive it today. Um, you know, in, instead of calling up your insurance firm and asking to put her on your insurance, maybe this is done through the console in the car, mediated by BMW, and you just say, you know. Here's Carrie's details. I want to let her drive my car today. And perhaps you want to set some constraints. You don't want her going faster than 70. You don't want her driving in the dark. You don't want her driving out of Massachusetts. You might set all of those parameters. Paul, in the lead into this, we talked a little bit about so the work that you have done, which was sort of at one level surprising, but one level is not surprising, which is in a, in a world where data and technology becomes more important, Technology providers, which is sort of how they live their lives, may be advantaged. So some of the industrial players, like Bosch, as you described them, may not be as advantaged as one might think. The advantage may go to those who actually have the technology competency in a, in a, in a platform that is data technology heavy. I, I think we're seeing some very interesting you know, trends play out there. Um, we've just published Forrester's first wave looking at the industrial IoT software platforms market. And the leaders there, you know, to your point, Victor, the leaders are the likes of Microsoft and IBM and SAP. The strong performers are the industrial companies you might have thought of first, the likes of GE, the likes of Hitachi, Siemens, Bosch. And it's, a, it's an interesting shift. So it's not absolutely not to say there is no place for these industrial providers. Absolutely not. But the the software and technology companies have you know, jumped into the lead just recently in terms of the strength and breadth of their offering and the strength and breadth of their relationships with customers and other partners in the ecosystem. 
So for the industrial companies who sort of started this journey off really by digitizing the processes around their own machines, they're now embarking on that broader journey and saying, actually, we need to be able to digitize our own machines, but also any other machines that may be in your factory as well, whether they've got our logo on them or not. And also bringing in the rich analytics, the rich systems of insight, and the engagement back into other business processes and other technology processes elsewhere in the organization. The technology companies understand how to do that, the industrial players are beginning to learn how to do it. So absolutely don't discount them. So, Paul, we're, we're early days in what appears to be a quasi-data technology orchestration revolution in the industrial space. Different ways of working together to produce different values with different economics. What do you see big happening over the next, let's say, year or two that begins to define the shape and nature of, of industrial platforms? I think there's a recognition, you know, to go back to what Mark Andreessen said years ago about software eating the world. Every company is going to have to be at least in part a software company. And they're going to have to understand the ways in which software and digital augment their physical product. And augment is the important bit, augment, not replace. Paul, this was thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Victor, and thank you, Kara. Good to talk to you as always. Thank you, Paul. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.